All right. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you. And we are in the home straight of a series called The Reason for Everything. Not what we normally do. What you normally do, especially for those of you who are here for the first time, we take some scripture, we read it, we understand it, we try to apply it in our lives, and then we try to live it out. But in this series, we're asking tough questions. Questions maybe you've had, people have asked of you, maybe you've read a book, seen something on TV that have caused you to doubt, to question, and we're going there. And those are the questions we're asking, just to let you know where we're going over the next two weeks. Next week, we're looking at the resurrection and the evidence that points towards the resurrection. That's going to be the highlight of the whole series, the center point of our faith, and the evidence that looks towards that. And then the week after, we're going to be talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? And really, um, because this series is looking at all the evidence, we're just going to see what God says about the gospel, what the Bible says, and we're going to speak it loudly and proclaim it. And I really encourage you to be there for that. I think a powerful time for every single one of us to connect with God on that. But today we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Now, we make a big deal out of Jesus every single week here. We've just been singing songs about him. But if you had to ask different people who Jesus is, you'll get different answers. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not a god, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism teaches that Jesus is an incarnation of small g gods, many gods, like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but was inferior to another man and a prophet, Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the archangel Michael, a created being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who became one of many gods, that he was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. New Age guru Deepak Chopra says Jesus is a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. Scientology, if you had to ask Tom Cruise and John Travolta who is Jesus, they would say, and I've got no idea what they mean, but they would say that Jesus was an implant forced on a thetan about a million years ago. And even for people who go to church, for some people, Jesus is my life coach. He exists just to make me feel better about myself and make better decisions in life. For some people, Jesus is just my bro and we just hang out. And for some people, Jesus is my butler. If I say the right things, I can get Jesus to do what I want him to do. But this question, who is Jesus, is probably the most important question every single one of us needs to be able to answer. Now, at a superficial level, people like Jesus. People like welcoming Jesus. People like twinkly-eyed movie Jesus, you know, with the blonde hair and clothes that somehow never get dirty. People like the Jesus who hangs out with sinners. People like the Jesus, uh, uh, many people like Jesus who turned water into wine. So at a superficial level, people like Jesus, but dig a little bit deeper. And there's a whole bunch of things that Jesus said and did that actually come right up against culture. The mainstream idea of culture and media today is one of tolerance. Tolerance, um, which on its own is not really a bad thing, but it starts to take the form of this. Well, you've got your truth and you can believe whatever you want to believe in. And I've got my truth and I'm going to believe whatever I want to believe in. Now, of course, we need to allow people to believe in what they want to believe in, but we throw truth in there as well. So who are you? To say that what I believe in is not true. And who am I to say that what you believe in is not true? And, and I, I mean, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Next time I'm on the golf course, well, you think I got 105. Um, well, my truth is that I got 82. Let's see how that works out. 
And Jesus butts up against this trend in culture when he says something like John 14, 6, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth and the life. No one, not everyone, no one comes to the Father except through me. (coughs) And this makes people very uncomfortable. This is a problem for them. This is the problem of exclusivity. And for that reason, where Jesus is claiming to be an exclusive way to the Father, this seems arrogant, unfair, narrow-minded, intolerant, and exclusivist. Even for many Christians, this is a difficult one to swallow. I mean, here we are in South Africa, and I know we're going through some tough times at the moment, but really we've got this beautiful potential. We've got this rainbow nation of cultures and backgrounds and foods and people wearing different clothes, and and we want to celebrate that. But at the same time, of course, we've got this melting pot of religions. So how can we celebrate the diversity of South Africa, and yet at the same time, who are we to say that some religions are right and some religions are wrong? And the problem that people have with the exclusivity of Jesus is not so much that it's logically implausible. We'll talk about that just now, but more that it just feels wrong. It feels intolerant. It feels culturally wrong. It leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And the dominant way of thinking about this many religion concept is inclusivism. We've spoken a lot over the last few weeks about atheism and naturalism and and how, as a worldview, it just doesn't seem to hold water. Inclusivism, inclusivism says all religions are right. Atheism says all religions are wrong. Inclusivism, which is what we see on TV, media, uh, talk show hosts, all religions are right. So you may have seen the movie Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Um, and there's a scene that kind of represents this thinking. Well, uh, he's a race car driver and he crashed during the race and he's thinking he's on fire and he's running around and he he wants help so he prays he says help me jesus help me jewish god help me allah help me tom cruise use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off me help me oprah winfrey so he's just hedging his bets he's hoping as he prays if he prays wide enough that someone's going to answer him so we've got this right-hearted impulse i mean we don't want to be unnecessarily intolerant we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive and so on that, we actually conclude, well, all religions are true. But here's what we don't understand. And I get it. We don't want to offend unnecessarily. But when we say all religions are true, that makes sense when you're in Starbucks in Rosebank and you're drinking your latte in your skinny jeans and you're looking around you. But when you say all religions are true, you have just offended, in the name of being inoffensive, you have just offended 95% of the world's population. I mean, imagine just picking two religions. Imagine going to Muslim Palestinians and, and, and families there and um, some Jews on the other side of the border, both of whom have probably lost family members to the other side, and say, don't worry, guys, it all pans out. You're both going to heaven. I mean, that, that's going to be offensive to both of those people. And when you say all religions are right, do you really mean all religions? I mean, do you include the Ammonites? who used to take babies and tear their limbs apart and throw them in a fire with drums playing so their parents couldn't hear their screams? Are they right too? Should we include them? What about Jim Jones, who convinced over 900 of his followers to kill themselves? So is it really all religions are right? Or do you have a line somewhere? And and why and where do you draw your line? Is it just religions that somehow make you feel comfortable, who are popular? 
Pastor Mark Clark, he wrote a great book that I highly recommend called The Problem of God. And he points out that this inclusivist way of thinking is actually the most exclusivist way of thinking. For two reasons. Number one, it excludes all major religions of the world, which is most of the world. And also it says this, and there's also even some intellectual arrogance in this. It says, I have a particular way of thinking about all religions that is exclusive, that is true, that is right. In other words, the way I'm thinking about things is better than the way everybody else is thinking about things. One of the ways that people talk about this is a parable uh, with Eastern origins about six blind men and an elephant. Um, So six blind men walk into a room and they're asked to describe what's in front of them. So they put out their hands. One guy takes hold of the tusk and he says, well, I've got a spear. One guy gets hold of the trunk. He says, I've got a snake. One guy gets hold of the, touches the side of the elephant. He says, well, there's a wall in front of me. And so it goes on and they say, well, that's what it's like. Uh, with all the world religions, they're all kind of on the same path and they're all touching the same God and they're all kind of partially right. Leslie Newbegin points out that this story actually backfires on itself because it's telling the story from the vantage point of someone who claims to actually see the whole truth, someone who's got a comprehensive understanding of reality which the others don't. In other words, they, all the world religions, they know in part, but I know in full. And in addition, inclusivist claims are actually illogical. So Mahatma Gandhi said, and many people believe this, well, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Now, when you speak to people about this concept, what you hear, they might not use this language, but you hear things like, well, basically, all religions are fundamentally similar and superficially different. In other words, again, like those blind men and the elephant. Oh, you know, they wear different clothes, they eat different food, they sing different songs. But at the end of the day, it's really just the same thing. But the truth is, they are superficially similar and fundamentally different. So most religions have a common sense of morality and they've got something along the golden rule lines, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, but once you get past that, you realize... They are fundamentally different. They differ on sin, salvation, ultimate reality, justice, heaven, hell, and Jesus. Those are important things that they are completely differing on. And the important thing is this. No two opposing ideas can be right in the same way at the same time. And we know this. I don't know if you've ever taken a ticket for a seat on an airplane or a movie. And you're looking for E6. So you look for seat E6, and as you get there, there's someone sitting on your seat. Here's what you don't do. What you don't do is, ah, we're both right. All right, and sit on their lap and enjoy the ride. No, you assume one of you is wrong. One of you kind of is looking at, you know, it's actually F6, or one of you is on the wrong plane on the wrong movie, but you know that in the whole universe, only one of you is E6 for that plane at that time, or that movie. Now, I know we maybe want everything to be true, but just because the, we want something to be true doesn't make it true. Uh, sometimes the way I deal with things in life is denial, absolute denial. Like when my pool goes green, in my head I'm like, no, that's not true, that's not true. So I pretend it's not true, but the time comes when I have to face up to what is true. And the longer I leave it, the worse things get and the more expensive it takes to fix my, my pool. So either Jesus is the Son of God, Or he's not. He just can't be both. 
That's illogical. So we're noticing that even though it is a difficult thing to kind of believe the exclusive claims of Jesus, inclusivist claims are illogical and they don't make sense and they're actually in many ways the most exclusive claim of them all. Now, we're going to talk about another problem people have about Jesus. And if you're over 30, maybe this might be new to you. Um, but one of the pushbacks that comes uh, around these days is what is known as the problem of the Christ myth. A movie went around university campus, campuses a few years ago called Zeitgeist. And this is what they're claiming. Basically, they're saying that long before Jesus, there are all these other man-god myths from different cultures about dying and rising gods who heal people, walk in water, born of a virgin, feeding thousands of people, having 12 disciples, dying for three days and rising again. In other words, your Jesus, you know, it's tomato, tomato. I mean, there's nothing new. Uh, we're not going to try and, you know, worship all these other guys. So why are we worshiping Jesus? Now, the first problem with that is, unlike all these other mythological figures, is we think and, and we believe, and the evidence shows, that Jesus is an historical figure. He actually existed. No one believes Dionysius existed. Some of the people, they say, just like Jesus, Horus, Mithras, Dionysius. Now, not only do we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus in what we know as the scriptures, and again, last week, um, we spoke about how we believe the scriptures are historically reliable, but we also have historical accounts of Jesus that are from hostile sources. Those who are hostile to Christianity and some of them hostile to Judaism. And yet we've got this evidence that Jesus was a historical figure. Now, we've got names like Thallus, Tacitus, Phlegon, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Lucian, Celsus, and about a dozen more. And when we take what each of these have said about Jesus existing historically, this is what we get put together. Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He was a teacher who taught that through repentance and belief, all followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs. He was a wise man who claimed to be God and the Messiah. He had unusual magical powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said and betrayed by Judah Iscariotto. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar and wear a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover and this crucifixion occurred under the direction of Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius. Note the specifics here. On the day of his crucifixion, the sky grew dark and there was an earthquake. Afterwards, he was buried in a tomb and the tomb was later found to be empty. He appeared to his disciples, resurrected from the grave and showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus' disciples and followers uphold a high moral code. One of them was named Matthew. The disciples were also persecuted for their faith but were martyred without changing their claims. They met regularly to worship Jesus, even after his death. This is what we've got from hostile sources. So the evidence is showing that Jesus stands out amongst these mythological figures as a real person of history. I mentioned earlier that the claim goes, the claim by some goes, that well, all these other myths, all these God-men-like figures, and they could also walk on water and heal people, born of a virgin, feeding thousands of people, etc., etc., etc. When we dig deeper, we realize, man, these claims are a massive stretch. I'm definitely not going to have time to go through all of them. Let me go through two. So one of the claims is Horus, the Egyptian god. It is claimed that Horus had 12 disciples. 
But there is not an Egyptologist alive who accepts this claim. There is nothing in the Egyptian hieroglyphics that said Horus had 12 disciples. There's nothing in the Book of the Dead that said Horus had 12 disciples. In fact, the closest we get in the Egyptian hieroglyphs of Horus having disciples is four disciples or accepted followers, a turtle, a bear, a lion, and a tiger. Now, how? That is exactly the same as Jesus' 12 disciples. I have no idea. They also claim that Horus was born of a virgin. But if we look at the story of his conception, we learn his mother's was, name was Isis, his father was Osiris, and Osiris was in a fight with another god, he was killed, cut up into pieces. Isis, his mother, came and gathered up the, all the pieces and hovered over his severed phallus. Uh, and that is somehow exactly the same as Joseph and Mary and Jesus' miraculous conception. The, the claim is also that Horus rose from the dead. But in most of the stories about Horus, he doesn't even die or his death is not mentioned. There is one story where he does die, and in that story, he's cut into pieces by an enemy, thrown into water, and then fished out the water by crocodiles. Again, I, I can see how that is exactly the same as Jesus being crucified and rising again from a tomb three days later. Um, I'm going to talk about quickly about Mithras. The claim is that there are all these similarities to Jesus, and just like him, he too was born of a virgin. Except the stories about Mithras show that he came out of a rock fully formed with a dagger in one hand and a torch in the other. I, I mean, yeah, Joseph Mary, exactly the same thing. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, how do you tell if a rock is a virgin? Another problem with Mithraism is that there was a, a, a former form of Mithraism in Babylonian culture and Mithrat in that culture. There were no similarities with Jesus. But most of what we know about Mithraism come from kind of the Roman form of Mithraism, which is 3rd and 4th centuries AD. In other words, hundreds of years after Jesus. What we have is at the time is that there were Christian writers who were already claiming that, no, Mithras is modeled after Jesus, not the other way around. And it seems like the historical record would, would show that. So the evidence points towards an actual historical figure called Jesus of Nazareth, who made these unique claims and did these incredible things. The final objection to Jesus' existence, uh, or who was Jesus, is made actually from the Bible, where people read the Bible and they say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. And what they mean by that is, you never see the words, and you can read it for yourself, you never see the words, I am God in the Bible. Because just, before, just because someone claims to be God doesn't make you God. Caesar claims to be a God. David Koresh and Jim Jones, the cult leaders, they claim to be God. But most people will say, well, they were insane or megalomaniacs. They're not God. But what we're going to see is that not only did Jesus claim to be God, but he claimed to be a very specific God. The one and only true God. The God who made all things. The God of Abraham and Moses. The God who is sovereign and who alone forgives sin and deserves our worship. And while Jesus never said the words, I am God, let's see how he does claim to be God. John 17 verse 3, he says this. Now this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God. So Jesus is affirming what Jews have always believed. There is only one true God and Jesus is affirming that. But then he adds himself to that list. He says, this is eternal life. That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In John 14 verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, under Jewish law, this was considered blasphemy and this was punishable by death. 
So let's see how this plays out. John 8 verses 58. Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham was thousands of years before that. And Jesus is not claiming to be two and a half thousand years old. He's claiming his pre-existence. That he has always existed. But not only that, he is also making a claim to the divine name. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asks for God's personal name, God says, my name is Yahweh. And the best English translation we have is, my name is I Am. And Jesus is claiming that he is I Am. Now, just in case you think we're stretching the, the English language a bit far when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I Am. Let's read verse 59. The Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Verse 59 says, At this they picked up stones to stone him. They knew he was making a direct claim to the name of the only one and true God. And finally, John 10 verses 30 to 33. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. Which of these do you stone me? Well, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus definitely claimed to be God. That doesn't make him God. And just by the way, next week, we're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection, which is, I believe, the evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But if someone claims to be God, and even if Jesus claimed to be God, you've already got only three options, as C.S. Lewis pointed out. Either you're lying, so you are intentionally making up a religion to deceive people, or you're a lunatic, you're insane. Like Jim Jones, David Koresh, you're crazy. Or you're actually God, you're Lord. Lie a lunatic or Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis said about that. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Again, in the name of tolerance, we want to say he was great. Maybe a great man, great prophet, great leader. But we simply cannot call him that. Either he's a liar He's not worth following. He's crazy not worth following. Or he is Lord. Now, as we wrap up our time together, we are going to go to the Lord's table or the communion table, um, which is something that we as Christians do. We're about to make much of Jesus. We're about to celebrate him as Lord. And just as we do that, I, I want to just tell you why I'm a Christian. Now, I did grow up in a Christian family, and some people would say, well, there's your excuse. You're just a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family, or you grew up in South Africa in the 80s. I mean, if you grew up in China, or if you grew up in, in India, you would not be a Christian. Maybe that's true. But that argument works both ways. If you're an atheist, maybe you're just an atheist because you were born in South Africa or America or Europe in, in the early 2000s. And maybe if you were born in, you know, in China, you would not be an atheist. Does that mean what you believe is not true? Or, or, or uh, again, is this now just relative truth? And I think we'd both agree that what we believe is actually true. And 
I've come to believe that what I believe is actually true. I believe Jesus actually existed. I believe he actually made these claims. I believe the evidence points towards his existence and his claims. I believe the evidence of the resurrection points towards the fact that he's not a liar, not a lunatic, that he is in fact Lord. And here's the thing. My mind needs evidence and we need to be able to have rational dialogue with our souls as we doubt these things and with others as they question these things. But Christianity is so much more than that. My heart needs evidence, not just to know facts about Jesus, but to know Him. To know Him and to know that I am loved. I want to walk around the face of this earth knowing I'm loved, knowing there's purpose, knowing I have hope, knowing I matter, knowing I have value. And the cross, specifically the empty cross, is evidence that I am loved. I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Jesus paid the ultimate price for me. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave up his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is not just rational. This is about relationship with God. And we get to walk this earth with him. As we eat this bread and wine, we are literally going to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're going to have the band up and we're going to be just playing some a song gently and quietly. And uh, you're going to have an opportunity to stand and sing the song affirming who Jesus is. Again, if you're a Christian, that's going to be what you're going to affirm. We're going to worship him. We're going to honor him. And as the song is playing, would you in your own time just get up and go take the broken the, the bread which represents the broken body of Christ and the juice which represents the shed blood of Christ and worship him as Lord.